Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Grace to All with Paul Gray. I know on this platform, both on the podcast and the YouTube videos, that I've talked to you about the parable of the prodigal son before. That's not really what it's about, but that's what it's been misnamed. But I'm going to talk about some fresh insight that I've had to that and the other two similar parables that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 15. It's the only time in all of Jesus' teaching that he tells three parables back to back to back about the same subject. So we can infer from that that this was pretty important to Jesus. All right, I'm just going to give you some recent observations. Observation one, all the things that were lost in these three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the sons, belonged to begin with, and they never lost their value. That, of course, is true of you and me and everyone. Observation two, Jesus often uses the analogy of sheep as people, because sheep are defenseless. They're unable to live in the world on their own. I mean, do you ever hear about a flock of wild sheep? No, there are herds of wild horses. There are herds of wild pigs. There are flocks of wild goats. Sheep can't make it on their own. They're literally defenseless. Did you know that sheep can die just from being suddenly scared? (laughs) or collectively a group of sheep being scared. It's called sheep worry. You can Google that, sheep worry. And when you do, one of the first things that comes up is a story of this recently happened in Great Britain. A flock of 116 sheep died because of a dog. It's the UK's worst case of sheep worrying in living memory. Now, the sheep, many of them who were pregnant, had been herded into a fairly tight group inside of a fence with a gate that bordered, you know, one side of it. Well, somebody came walking along with the dog. The dog barked loudly and got up on the fence like he was going to try to get in, but he couldn't. The sheep panicked, and they either died from just shock of being scared to death or from pushing in and crushing each other. Sergeant Tom Carter, who investigated this, said there were no signs of the sheep being savaged by the dog, but they were 100% certain that the deaths were caused by the dogs because of sheep worry. He went on to say a sheep doesn't actually have to be savaged by a predator. They panic easily, and their instinct is to follow each other so they can die of shock or by being crushed, which is what seemed to have happened here. It was a dog that just scared them to death. Well, people are like that too. We can worry ourselves to death. We can worry ourselves into poor health. We can literally die a spiritual death from being frightened to death 
about what God, not the real God, but a fictitious God, is going to do to us if we don't get things right. I saw a thing on Facebook the other day. A friend of mine posted this. It's a little meme. It says, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant to save all of mankind. The angels ask, well, will it be based on their decision? And God said, no, they're not very good at that. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Observation three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boys in Luke 15 always belonged and never lost their value, and none of them asked to be saved. Only the younger boy begged to be able to just pay for food like a servant. Observation four. Now, here's really what I want to talk about today. I want you to think about this. We, you and I, human beings, can create hell out of heaven, and we can create heaven out of hell. We have that God-given ability to create. Now, I'm just going to give you part of Luke 15 from the Mirror Translation. I'm not going to teach it in depth, but we're going to get some real observations here. Verse 1, Jesus is talking here. Well, actually, Luke is recording this. Pretty soon, Jesus is going to be talking. Luke records this. Now, all the people of reputation, the infamous tax collectors, as well as your regular sinners, were in a habit of crowding around Jesus. They were magnetically drawn to him, addicted to his conversation. And you know what? That's how people react to us when we're letting Christ live as us. They're magnetically drawn to us. They just like being around us. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the law professors, the religious leaders, were furiously complaining about the warm hospitality with which Jesus embraced these people in their frequent banquets. In the following three stories, Jesus justifies their frequent festivity. Verse 3, the constant murmuring of the professional religious leaders inspired this story, Dr. Luke said. Here's the deal. Jesus is hanging out with these notorious sinners. He likes being with them. He parties with them. The religious leaders have judged those people as sinners, as no good, as outcasts, as being separated from God, as not being as good as they are. And because Jesus hangs out with them, they judge Jesus the same way. Verse 10, this is after the lost sheep was found and the lost coin was found. Jesus said, I tell you, the faces of the celestial messengers light up with joy over a single person who rediscovers their authentic value and identity. And he's saying, and Francois, the translator, says this in the footnotes, this describes the awakening of the mind to that which is true, a realignment of one's reasoning. It's a gathering of one's thoughts, a co-knowing. Faith is not a doctrine. It is a discovery. There's nothing in common with what we normally think of as faith, working up enough faith. No, it's discovering what is already true. Now we jump down to verse 17 in Luke chapter 15. This is after he talks about the younger son uh, asking for his inheritance, the father giving it to him. He goes off into the far land and has a good time partying for a while. Verse 17 After his money had run out, there was a famine. He had nothing to eat. At this point, he came to his senses. Thinking out loud, he said, My father has many hirelings or servants working for him. Everyone has more than enough to eat, and here I am starving to death from hunger. 
Verse 18, he got up, was ready to go, and began to rehearse what he would do. He said, I'll travel home. I'll face my father. I'll tell him that I've sinned against heaven and before him. Verse 19, I will convince him that I am no longer worthy. I want you to think about that phrase. This boy thought he was going to convince the father, who is God in this story, that he's no longer worthy. I don't know about you, but I know I used to do this, and a whole lot of religious people do this. We try to convince God that we're not worthy. We say, oh, God, I'm such a sinner. I'm not worthy. I've done this. I've done that. Could you please forgive me? Well, the father didn't even go there. This boy's saying, I'm going to convince the father that I'm no longer worthy to be called his son, and I'm going to beg him to just employ me like one of his hired servants. So with that, he got up and began to return his journey to his father. He was yet a long way from home when his father saw him, and filled with compassion, he ran to his son. He flung his arms around his neck, and he kissed him fondly. When the son finally caught his breath, he began his rehearsed sinner's prayer. Father, I've sinned before heaven and in your face. I'm not worthy to be known as your son. But the father interrupted him right there. He wasn't even paying any attention to this, the text says. Didn't give him a chance to finish his rehearsed plea. He merely instructed his slaves to immediately bring out the best robe, clothe him in it, and give him a ring to put on his finger and shoes for his feet. He absolutely wouldn't listen to this son who had broken almost every rule you possibly could as a Jewish boy then, according to the religious leaders, he wasn't even hearing that. The son tried to convince him that he wasn't worthy, and he wasn't listening. He's not going to take any of that. not even going to let the boy talk about that. So here's my next observation. Humans, many of us, have bought into the lie that we're not worthy and even believe we have to convince God that we're not worthy. This story just blows that lie to smithereens. Observation seven, we don't even have to confess our sin in order to be forgiven. Now, I know that's going to rock many of you religious people's world. You're going to come up with one verse, 1 John 1, 9, and say, but what about? And you're going to completely ignore the myriad of other verses. I could list 10 of them off the top of my head that contradict that. You know, it's never good to make a doctrine out of just one verse, especially taken out of context, especially not having researched what the original words mean. I'm not going to get into that day. I've taught about it other times, but I, I want you to know you don't have to confess your sin to be forgiven. You are already forgiven. God didn't even listen to you when you confess your sins, just like with the younger son. All right. Back to Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 23. In full anticipation for his son's return, he now also had the grain-fattened calf brought and slaughtered. He knew the boy was coming back. He had this specific calf, grain-fed, ready for a party when the boy came back. Text says, it was party time. So with our minds flooded with joy, the father said, let the merry celebration begin. Francois tells us the Greek word means good, celebrating goodness, and well-being, well done, to be celebrating in a merry frame of mind. He said, this is the reason for our joy. My son here was dead, and he was revived. He seems to be lost forever, but here he is found. And so they began their merry celebrations. Now, the older brother in this story, this is a parable, you know, the older brother represents 
the religious leaders, the rule keepers, the teachers of the law. And Jesus was speaking to them directly, and they knew he was talking to them. The older brother was returning from the field and approaching the house. He heard what sounded like a concert of instruments and a choir of voices singing and dancing. If you were coming home from work, you got to your house, and you heard that there was a big party going on, how would you feel? Well, I think I'd feel happy. I want to go in and see what they're celebrating and enjoy and celebrate with them but not the religious leader boy. Alarmed, he called one of the boy's servants and asked him what this was all about. The boy answered, your brother's here. So your father sacrificed the grain-fatted calf to celebrate your brother returning home in good health. This news made the boy so happy. Uh, No, this news enraged the older brother who had no desire to join them. Then his father went out and pleaded with him. And he said, come on in, we're going to party. Guy answered his father, he said, Consider the many years that I've toiled for you like a slave. At no time did I ever dodge any of your commandments. Yet you never considered rewarding me even with a little lamb so I could party with my friends. However, when this son of yours comes here, having devoured your savings by wasting it on prostitutes, you slay the grain-fatted calf. And the father said to him, My dear child, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. To now have our minds flooded with merriness and exceeding joy is fitting because your own brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. That's how the passage ends. Now, Francois, the translator, says this in his footnotes, his commentary. He says, in all three stories, the term lost implies ownership. You can't be lost unless you first belong. He says, Jesus, again, points out the religious leaders The fact that the Gentiles and the Jews all have the same father. Everybody has the same father and share the same value and heirship. Sonship squandered reduces life to slavery. This was true for both brothers in the story. And it's true for us today. We can squander sonship and not experience the abundant life that Jesus came for us to have. Francois goes on to say, oh, the beauty of a father who's not offended by the other brother's initial attitude, but pleads with the same urgency. My boy, come on in, join the party. He says, the problem is most people, including most Bible believers, don't know it. They don't know what we just learned in that passage. He said, that's why we live our lives with persuasion, intent, and passion to tell them. And he's quoting Isaiah 40 verse 9 there. He says, multitudes of people, here's what I want you to get. Multitudes of people today are in hell on this side of the grave. We have the keys to unlock a door that was already opened when Jesus went there as a man to free the whole human race from Adam till Noah till now. He says, wow, what a joy to introduce people to the freedom of sonship. Let's not make the older brother our reference. Let's not be like the religious leaders. No, we know the father's heart. All right, the older boy's problem, representing all of the religious leaders, not only of that day, but the religious leaders of this day, those who judge, say, we're better than you, we're in, you're out, you're no good, something's wrong with you, God's keeping score of your sins, you're going to get it unless you do what we tell you. His problem was judgment, which led to unforgiveness. 
in not being willing to accept, embrace, and include the ones he judged to be not worthy, like his own brother and his own father. He thought he was worthy because of what he did for the father when he never had to do a thing. He had self-righteousness. He thought he was righteousness because of what he'd done. That always leads to judging other people and judging yourself when you don't live up to all the standards that you've got there. And it always leads to anger and disgust, judging other people, separation. What it does is you're in heaven, just like that older boy and the religious leaders. They were right there with the party going on within earshot. Heaven was there. The kingdom of God was there. But they made it into hell, a hell of their own thinking, a hell of their own mind. They judged God. You shouldn't be that good. You're not that good. (laughs) They judged the boy for being wild. They judged themselves incorrectly as having earned a right relationship with the father. And when the father gave that right relationship indiscriminately to all of his children, they judged the father for not being who they thought he should be. Now, the younger boy's problem was he was convinced he wasn't worthy. And the best he could do would be just to get a few little bit of food by being like a servant. So he also was the son, heir to everything, but he judged himself unworthy. See, both of them judged themselves as unworthy or worthy because of what they'd done. Now, I want to ask you this. Where is the kingdom of God? Might seem like I've gone off on a tangent here, but it's very much related. Where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is in you. Jesus said that to the religious leaders who hated him, didn't believe in him, and didn't believe in his father. He said, the kingdom of God's in you. There's only one kingdom. So where is heaven? Well, heaven is in us. It's not out there, up there, somewhere in the sweet by and by. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is in us. Papa, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit live in us. We are one with them. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, and that's true of everyone. There is no place called hell. There is no place of eternal conscious torment. If God had created hell, do you think maybe it would have ever said that in all of Scripture, that God created a place of eternal conscious torment? It never says that. There is no place like that. Here's the deal. Each of us, just like the older brother in the story, have the ability to create hell. We can create hell, and we have, in our own mind. We're in heaven. The Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is in us. But we have taken that, many of us have taken that, and made it into a hell of either self-righteousness or feeling like we're not worried, both of which are lies. And God sent Jesus to show us those were lies and to reveal the truth to us about who God really is, that God is perfect, unconditional love that casts out all fear of judgment and torment and punishment. God is pure light with no darkness. 
God is all-consuming grace for everyone. God's perfect goodness and is always working out all things for the good. So I'm going to summarize these seven things. All the things that were lost in these three parables belong to begin with. They never lost their value. That's true for you and me and everyone. Number two, Jesus often uses the analogy of sheep as people because sheep, like us, are defenseless. We're unable to live in the world on our own. We're going to screw it up. Observation three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boys always belonged, and none of them had to ask to be saved. Observation four, we can create hell out of heaven and heaven out of hell. We have the power to do that. We also have the power to not do that. Observation five, God's love is relentless and never-ending and never-failing and always results in making all things right for everyone, resulting in euphoric joy. Observation number six, humans, most humans, have bought into the lie that we're either not worthy, and we got to convince God that we're not worthy, or that we've made ourselves worthy by our own actions. Observation number seven, we don't have to confess our sin in order to be forgiven. Observation number eight, we can make hell out of heaven or heaven out of hell in our minds, and we have the choice. Hope that's helpful to you all. It's really helpful to me and to others that I'm able to share this with. Next time, we're going to talk about forgiveness, some insight that uh, (laughs) is just amazing, and you're going to really be blessed. So I look forward to seeing you next time on Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thanks, you guys. Thanks all for being with me. I love you so much, and I look forward to next time. See you then. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.